Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. Glad to see all of you here tonight. Tonight we're going to be continue our, continue our discussion about the Holy Spirit. This quarter is not entirely about the Spirit. Uh, we're going to spend probably six or seven of the class periods talking about Him, and then the rest of the quarter will be given to studying about the Father and the Son. What I want to do tonight is to talk about Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, about the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, there's more than one opinion about what this means, what is the gift. I'm going to tell you tonight what I believe that it is and the reason why I believe that. There are, I'm sure, some views with which I, you know, I, I don't necessarily think they're accurate or they're the right ideas, but I don't believe that the idea conflicts with anything else in Scripture. The one that really bothers me, that concerns me, is probably the most common view. And it's this. When a person is baptized, the Spirit comes into him and does, I don't know, I guess you'd say ambiguous things. What happens then? What happens? The verse says, and you're familiar with it, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If that was the only verse we had, I, I, I don't suppose I would be teaching this class the way that I will tonight. But that's not all that it says. And sometimes what happens is that you have preachers that will springboard from that. When we're baptized, then we get the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and then where do we go from there? You know, I mean, sometimes uh, you'll hear a preacher who will talk about how the Spirit is talking to him personally. Well, we've discussed that and uh, in a class during this quarter already about the problem with that. Somebody tell me, what's the, what's, what's a problem with that? That the Holy, does the Holy Spirit speak to us separate from the Word? Does He? And why not? What's the problem with that? What's the, what's the problem with saying that the Spirit speaks to us separate from the Word? All right, it's, it's ambiguous. I mean, so what he tells you may not be what he tells me. And, and of course, Paul wrote that the Spirit speaks expressly. What we have is a scripture that was given by the Holy Spirit. Holy men of God spake as they were moved or borne along by the Holy Spirit. So the question is, what in the context does gift of the Holy Spirit have to, have to do with? So you need to go over and turn over to Acts chapter 2. We'll naturally be working in that chapter tonight. Now, some preliminary things. The first thing is that I want you to remember some very rudimentary things about the Spirit. The Spirit is God. The Spirit is real. The Spirit is not an it. Never, never refer to the Holy Spirit as it. The Holy Spirit is a he and a person. And so we talked a couple of weeks ago about the personality of the Holy Spirit. He gave us the New Testament through inspired men. 
All scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, and this is really important to the last here, why did he give us the scripture, 2 Timothy 3, 16, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly furnished unto every good work. What's after that? I mean, what, what, what more do we need after that if the scripture is given to make us complete unto every good work? That's important. Where do we get the scripture? From the Spirit. 2 Peter 1.21. Jude 3 says, Contend earnestly for the faith, which was once and for all delivered to the saints. And this too, think about this. I would argue that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit dwells in us, and he does dwell in us. The Bible says that. But he does so in the very same way that God, that God the Father and God the Son dwell in us. The same kind of terminology having to do with the, the Son and the Father dwelling us, in us is the terminology you read about the Spirit. Let me show you what I mean. The Spirit dwells in us, 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 16. Know you not that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Does he? Watch what it says. But listen to this, 2 Corinthians 6, 16. For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, that's not ambiguous. That says that God the Father dwells in us. What about the Son? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. You're familiar with Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Does, does Jesus dwell in his people? Yes. Does God the Father dwell in us? Yes. Does the Spirit dwell in us? Yes. It is interesting to me that, that we, we extrapolate so many things from the statement that the Spirit dwells in us that we might not say in reference to God the Son or God the Father. I, I have to determine to study a passage in its context and when you do that with this passage, it really turns on the light. The questions I want to answer in this class are these. What was the gift of the Holy Spirit that these people at Pentecost were promised? That's the first one. And number two, are we promised that same gift tonight? All right, here we go. We're in Acts, the second chapter. And I want to talk first about Joel's prophecy. So you have at the beginning of the chapter, you have the apostles Filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 4, they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And when Peter begins to speak, he says, now, these are not drunk. That's not, it's not because we're inebriated. Drop down to 16. This, but this, what's that? That the miraculous, that the miracles that, that are happening, they're, they're, the, the people are asking questions. How can we hear these people speak in our own tongue? How is this, this happening? And the response is, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And coincidentally, like this is Acts 2, this is in Joel 2. This was that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. It will come to pass in the last days, says God, 
Here's the prophecy. And Peter just said that what's happening here in Acts 2 at Pentecost is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Now listen to what the prophecy said. It will come to pass in the last days, says God, I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they will prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and the signs in the earth beneath and blood and fire, vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood. It means a, a large catastrophic event. This is the beginning of the church before the coming of the great and notable day of the Lord. And it will come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, what Joel prophesied was about the miraculous. And it wasn't merely limited to the apostles. What he prophesied about and what Peter just said has now come to pass was that your sons and your daughters would prophesy and your young men would see visions, your old men would dream dreams. So in the first four verses, the apostles were filled with the Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 12, the people were perplexed about this. What means this? They were questioning the miraculous. Verse 16, he says this is what what was prophesied by Joel. And the, the quote from Joel is miraculous. There's nothing in Joel's prophecy that isn't miraculous. Now, why would Peter point point to Joel on this occasion and then the people to whom he's speaking receive something that was non-miraculous? Yes, sir. How do you mean? Good. Um, What Charles is saying is that God... uh, I, I I would change the terminology a little bit, Charles. Here's what I would say. Uh, that God works all around us. Now, I don't use the word miracle for that because I don't think that it's miraculous today. I don't think uh, God is performing miracles. Now, a miracle, yeah, it's in the, yeah within the normal, that's right. Right. So a miracle, by definition, is a supernatural occurrence. God works in amazing ways today that are not miraculous. If you break your arm, you go to the doctor and, or, or to your whatever, a physician's assistant, and they set the arm and put a cast on it. And how long does it take for an arm to heal, Pisa? Eight weeks? Okay, I don't really know. Okay, so in eight weeks, she's medical. Okay, so she knows. In eight weeks or so, Cut that cast off, and that that bone has fused together. I want to ask you a question. Is that an act of God? Yes. Of course it is. Of course it is. Now, if I break the same arm, though, and and, uh, somebody comes and touches it, prays over it, and those bones fuse together in about seven minutes, that's a miracle. The difference between God's providential work, the work that's all about us, and God's miraculous work is this. The miraculous was supernatural. Supernatural. Outside the boundaries of nature, or the normal, as Charles was saying. God works all around us, but now today he's not performing the miraculous. When you think about the miracles of the Bible, 
they weren't uh, like eight weeks and the bone is healed. That, that wasn't it. The, the miraculous was about signs. Signs. Well, like you have here in Acts chapter 2, and the people hear it. Now, these are unbelievers, right? Today, the miraculous is mostly to encourage the people who believe in it, and they, they buy into it. But, but then it was for the unbelievers. The sign was so pronounced. How is it, they question, that we can hear these, these people speak in our own tongues? How can this be? The response was from Peter, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And Joel's prophecy in Joel 2 that's quoted here is all miraculous. Acts 2 was a miraculous day. So verse 33, speaking of Jesus, this Jesus has God raised up, whereof we're all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he shed forth this, which you now see and hear. Again, miraculous. He's talking about the miraculous. And then you get to 38, and he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Did Peter, without any explanation, switch from talking about the miraculous to the non-miraculous in verse 38? I don't think so. Put yourself in their shoes. If you had been there at Pentecost, the beginning of the church, it was a miraculous day. The, the Holy Spirit came into those apostles and they spoke with other tongues. The Spirit gave them that utterance. The people questioned that. A reference then that the response is, it's Joel. It's what Joel prophesied. And what Joel prophesied was the miraculous. And then Peter turns to these people and says, now you repent and be baptized and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What would you have expected? Now by itself, that's not the argument, but it's the only argument, but it seems pretty strong to me. Now here's the second thing. The word gift, when attached in some way to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, and there are half a dozen of these. I'm going to read them to you quickly, but it's always miraculous. In every case that I know of where you have gift and the Holy Spirit connected, it's, it's in a miraculous context. For example, we read Acts 2.38. Listen to Acts 8, verse 20. But Peter said to him, to Simon, the sorcerer, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. What was that? Miraculous gifts, spiritual gifts, the apostolic power to impart those spiritual gifts. Here's Acts 10.45. It's about the pouring out of the Spirit on the household of Cornelius. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Was that miraculous or non-miraculous? Hmm, it was miraculous. Here's Acts 11, verse 17. If therefore God give, gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? Miraculous. Here's Ephesians 3 and verse 2. And Paul is talking about the miraculous endowment that he has a revelation. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation 
It's miraculous. He made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Miraculous. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. It's all miraculous, and here's the word used in connection to that. Um, And then you have Ephesians 4 and verse 7, which is a continuation of that same thought. So here's the next question. How was it that the people received miraculous gifts in the first century? How'd they receive the miraculous gifts? Acts 8 is a great chapter to, to understand this. Beginning in verse 12. But when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon, that's Simon the sorcerer, himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now, when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, Philip preaching to these people, these people were being baptized. When the apostles heard about that, they sent Peter and John, who when they were come down prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given. That's how how he was given. He offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this your wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. How was the Holy Spirit given? And the answer is through the laying on of the apostles' hands. The apostles... One sign of an apostle was the ability to confer those gifts to other people. What Simon the sorcerer wanted to buy, to purchase, was not the miraculous gift. He wanted to purchase the ability to convey those gifts. He wanted to purchase what the apostles were able to do. And of course, the answer to that was no. I want you to see something. I just think that this is not just, this doesn't hit you in the face when you're reading through here, but I think it's an interesting observation. The reason why the Samaritans who heard Philip preach, and and many of them were baptized, but when the apostles heard it, they sent Peter and John down there. Why did they have to do that? And the answer is because the miraculous gifts came by the laying on of those apostles' hands. Philip wasn't an apostle. He was a deacon, but not an apostle. He didn't have the ability to do that. So how is it that the, these new Christians would receive uh, a gift of the Holy Spirit like it's in Acts chapter 2? And the answer is you send apostles down there. They lay their hands on them. 
to further substantiate that reality, I want you to think about this. There's a difference between the beginning of 1 Corinthians and the beginning of the book of Romans in reference to the Holy Spirit and the miraculous gifts. When you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 4, I mean, the Corinthian church had many differing gifts. And 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 4 says, so that you, bec- you come behind in no gift. In other words, the Corinthian church had the miraculous gifts, and you can read about them in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. You have three chapters there, and it's all about the miraculous gifts and struggles they were having and, and the different gifts that they had. The Corinthian church didn't have any problem having miraculous gifts. Why not? Well, because Paul was there to lay hands on them. What about the church in Rome? So far as we know, parenthetically, Peter never went to Rome. But had he gone to Rome, Peter would have been able to lay hands on the the people in Rome, the new Christians, and they would have had these miraculous gifts. But you had to have an apostle to do that. Romans 1 verse 11 says, For I long, Paul wrote, I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that you may be established. People at Rome didn't have the miraculous gifts because they didn't have an apostle to go down there and lay hands on these Christians. The Corinthian church had, had lots of different miraculous gifts because they had the apostle Paul. Any, any comment at this point? All right, so uh, you can probably tell where I'm building. Acts chapter 2, gift of the Holy Spirit. Miraculous day, reference back to Joel chapter 2, which was a miraculous passage full of miracles and the promise of the miracles. And then he says, this is that, which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he preached and he said, repent, be baptized, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Was it miraculous? Well, we went through a half a dozen passages that link something to do with the Spirit and the word gift, and all of them, it's miraculous. That would, that would surely be an interesting point, wouldn't it? And when you go to Acts the 8th chapter, you find out that the way the Spirit was conveyed or given to people was by the laying on of the apostles' hands. That's how it happened. Now, let me show you a case study in baptism near that time. Now, this is Acts chapter 19. I want to start in verse 1. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said to him, We haven't so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? We're going to just stop a second. Get the progression of that. So, Paul finds some disciples. There were 12 of them. And, and he, didn't, he didn't say uh, or ask them at first about their baptism. He said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, we don't know what you're talking about. What's the next question? Well, what about your baptism then? Hold on. Hold on a minute. What does that suggest? 
it suggests, it implies that that uh, they had some problem with their baptism because had they had the Acts 2 baptism, they would have received that gift. But they didn't. They said, we haven't so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. He said, unto what then were you baptized? They said, unto John's baptism. Ah, then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him, who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues, and they prophesied. Now follow follow the progression then. Now the men, it says, were about twelve in all. The question about the Holy Spirit came first in verse 2. If the answer about the Holy Spirit question comes out wrong, it implies there was a problem with their baptism. What baptism? They said John's baptism. He baptized them again into Christ and then laid hands on them, and that was how the gift was imparted, the gift of the Holy Spirit. What I believe then and I know you're probably already figuring this out, is that the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 was a miraculous gift. And that those people who were baptized on that occasion all had the apostles' hands laid on them. You got all the apostles there in Jerusalem, right? And all, oh, you don't, you only need one. And everyone had hands laid on them and everyone on that occasion received miraculous gifts. Now, why do you suppose that would be done? Why, why do you suppose, if I'm right about that, and actually I believe that I am, why do you suppose that on that occasion that would be done? Why would you want 3,000 people at one time to receive a miraculous gift? Somebody? Hmm? To confirm the word. Why is it so important on that occasion to have such a big number of them? with the miraculous gifts. Why is that important? Louder. To avoid confusion. Well, what's going to happen is, right, and these people are going to go out from here. They're going to go out from here. And and they're going to need... This is... You know what Acts 2 is? It's the launching of the church. This is the launching pad of the church. Of course it makes sense that that because the miraculous gifts were for the purpose of confirming the word... That you would launch it this way. And when you get to Acts chapter 19, I just think it's rather overwhelming. Did you receive the Spirit? What are you talking about? I don't know anything about that. You don't? What about your baptism? Oh, John's baptism. Well, you need to be baptized into Christ, and then I need to lay my hands on you so that you will receive the miraculous gift. It was miraculous because the Bible says that they spoke with tongues and they prophesied. How'd you get it? Had an apostle lay his hands on me? Sir, that's a great question. The question is, if their baptism was no good, and that's just plain Alabama talk right there, that's how Brother Holmes talks, then that does that mean that everybody who had John's baptism had to be baptized again? And the answer to that is no. No. But people who were baptized with John's baptism after Acts 2 
after Acts 2 had to be baptized again. The apostles, I believe, had John's baptism. And you don't have, you don't have a record of them being baptized again. Charles? Well, God commanded John to baptize. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. John, John was a, a righteous man. John, you know. A couple of weeks ago, we spent, and then the week before that, we spent a good bit of time talking about the Holy Spirit. We're going to spend another class period talking about miracles, um, Lord willing, and we'll do that in the next few weeks here uh, as we talk about the Holy Spirit. So I'm not going to go any farther with that tonight, but uh, this question is about the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. What I do not believe is that the gift of the Holy Spirit is what some people say today. It's something... I mean, the Spirit comes in me when I come up out of the water, but what does He do? I don't know. I don't know what He does. I guess He encourages me, maybe He strengthens me, and you have to speak in some very ambiguous terms. I do not believe that's what was happening in Acts, the second chapter. What those people got was miraculous. It was a miraculous occasion. The, the, the prophecy was miraculous. It was called the gift of the Holy Spirit. All right, let's, let's go on. So this is kind of summarizing, but do we receive a like gift today when we are baptized? And the answer is we do not. We do not have the miraculous abilities like they did in the first century. And I, I believe that for two reasons. One is that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is about the miraculous gifts. Remember the, the triad of chapters, 12, 13, and 14 of 1 Corinthians are all about miraculous gifts. It's a great study. But in chapter 13 there, he, he says this, love never fails. This is 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 8. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Now, as I read this, I want you to appreciate that we're talking about means by which God communicates his word. Right, and and in the first century, that was miraculously done. But listen to this, and this is in the miraculous context. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, and that's miraculous knowledge, it's a miraculous context, it will vanish away. All of these means by which God was then communicating his word to launch the church in the first century, we're going to stop. It'll vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. That is, that the communique from God in prophecy and these other things, the tongues, the miraculous knowledge, came incrementally. And, and so we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect, that which is complete, has come, then that which is in part will be done away. We won't, we won't receive it like that anymore. And then he illustrates the point. And you, you're familiar with this. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Did you ever wonder what that meant? I mean, it's obviously true, but it's an illustration. What does, it, what does it illustrate? And the answer is, it illustrates the first days of the Lord's church. 
and that there were things that were characteristic of the church at that point, in particular, these miraculous gifts, that would, would no longer be true. It was in the infancy of the church. It's very much like uh, this building that we're sitting in right now. And many of us in this room can remember uh, standing on concrete here when this pad was poured and there were no walls. I can remember that very well. And then I remember when the, the, the studs came up and a lot of us have written, we wrote on a post before it was sheathed in sheetrock. I mean, uh, but there was scaffolding. There was scaffolding, in, of course, in, inside as well as outside. But when the building was finished, all of that scaffolding went away. The miracles were like that. The miracles were, were to confirm the word. It was evidence that unbelievers could look at. And I mean, you think about our Lord and the miracles which he did drew multitudes of people. And here you have the launching of the church. It's no surprise then that it was launched with the miraculous. 1 Corinthians 13, though, says there's going to come a time when those will be done away. When would that be? He says, when that which is perfect is come. Now, sometimes people look at that and say, well, that was the coming of, of uh, oh, that will be the second coming of Jesus because he's, he's perfect. That's not right. That's not right. First place, it doesn't coincide with other things we know. But the other thing is that Jesus is not a that, he's a him. And this says, when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. What's perfect is the New Testament. What's perfect is the completed word of God. It is perfect. It is completed, that is. And when it was completed toward the end of the first century, then those miraculous gifts passed away. Now, how do you... We can take that a step further. So how do the people... Common people get miraculous gifts. We've already talked about that from Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 19. It was by the laying on of the apostles' hands. Who else could do that? Nobody. Nobody else. Now, no other human could do it. You have Acts chapter 10 and Cornelius and the apostles received it directly from God. We can talk about that later. But the common measure of the Holy Spirit that people got, these Christians got, had to be by the laying on of the apostles' hands. So what happens when John dies? John's the last living apostle. What happens when he dies? And the answer is, there's nobody with the power to give those gifts. And, and John dies then at the end of the first century. And um, I would argue that, that when the apostles were dead and gone, and the people on whom they laid their hands were dead and gone, there were no more miraculous gifts. I said two things, two reasons I know that we don't have miraculous gifts today. And again, I'm going to spend a whole class on it later, but the first one is that 1 Corinthians 13 that we just read says it. But the second thing is that I've read my New Testament. I believe every miracle of the Bible is true. I believe every single one. I believe that that great fish swallowed Jonah. And I believe that the, those... Apostles in Acts 2 spoke with other tongues they'd never studied, right? I believe the widow's son at Nain was raised from the dead. Lazarus came out of that tomb. I believe all of those, those things are true. But I also know this. I've, I've been living for a while, and I've been around people who professed to perform miracles and, and studied with them. What they're describing is not that. The miracles that are 
purported to be practiced today are not anything, are nothing like the ones that you study in your New Testament. Unless, I mean, if you're talking to someone about this, they're nothing like the New Testament unless they occur today in Africa. I know, you think I'm crazy. My point is, my point is that in studying, this has been my experience. I'll say, well, tell me about the most impressive miracle that you've seen. Tell me, tell me the one that you, that rises to the surface and you think, wow, that is the evidence that we really do have the miraculous today. And the answer will typically be something like this, the raising of the dead. Really? Mm-hmm. And I say, did you see this? Well, it was in Africa. And, and I, you know, I suppose you could fill in the blank about where, but the point is that it would be in a faraway place, and they've been told that this occurred at some time. I, I, a very genuine, kind man I studied with on one occasion about this subject, and about 95% of his religion was the miraculous and the Holy Spirit. About 95%, that's, that is what he talked and lived and breathed. And I said, I went to one of his services with him where miracles were going on because we were involved in this study. And I asked him about the most impressive miracle. And he said, my daughter had a fever one night, burning up with fever. And we gave her some aspirin, and she had fever. In the morning, the fever was gone. Now, I'm not making fun of that fellow. I'm telling you, he was as, as genuine in his spirit as he could be. But he mistook the natural progression of things for the miraculous. I doubt that had the disciples, the apostles' miracles, been similar to that one in the first century, I doubt that you would have had people come and say, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God because no man can do the things that you do except God be with him. See, there's the purpose of the miracles. Is the Holy Spirit dwelling in us today? Yes. The answer is yes. And so is the Father, and so is the Son. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 16, Know ye not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's pretty emphatic. What about the Father? 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. For you're the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God. They shall be my people. Ephesians three seventeen says of Jesus that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Does Jesus dwell in us? Yeah, but we don't quarrel about that. We don't. We got that. How does Jesus dwell in you? Through the Scripture, through the Word of God. Does God dwell in you? We would all say yes. How does God dwell in you, the Father? How does he dwell in you right now? And, and you would say, through the study of his word. I would argue that that's true also about the Holy Spirit. So, in Acts chapter 2 and 38, there, there may be this question with what I'm teaching. So, what I'm saying is that in this verse... Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. 
and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The question may be, so you're saying that, that part of this verse is eternal. I mean, it's just, I don't mean eternal. I mean for the rest of the world, as uh, long as the world stands, and part of it is not applicable to us any, uh, today, and I believe that's accurate. But I would say that we were already there before we got to Acts chapter 2, verse 38, because the Great Commission in Mark 16. You're familiar with the first part, but do you remember the second part? It's exactly the same. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they'll cast out devils, they'll speak with new tongues, they'll take up serpents. If they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. People who believed and were baptized in the first century had miraculous gifts if an apostle was there to lay hands on them and was so disposed to do it. We do not have apostles today here. And so for that reason, when I look around and I say, God works all around us, but not miraculously, I'm not really shocked by that. We don't have anybody lay hands on us who can convey those gifts. Is the, is the birth of a baby an act of God? Yes. Is the birth of a baby a miracle? We, we talk about the miracle of birth all the time, don't we? Yeah, well, that's because we toss the word around. It's an act of God. But a miracle is a supernatural occurrence, not a natural one. And the birth of a baby is, I declare, very natural, isn't it? It's wonderful. Act of God. I'm not so sure, but what God's providential working is not actually more impressive than miraculous working. Somebody said that in miraculous uh, performing of a miracle, it's, it's that God the Spirit would stop the, the progression of, the, of life and he would insert an act and then he would resume everything as it goes. But a providential thing of God working providentially in our lives is that he, he weaves a thousand things to bring about the will of God. And that's natural. And we have that today. And I believe with all of my heart that God operates in our world today. But he doesn't do it miraculously. Any comment before we finish? Yes. Carrie's asking about the promise in verse 39. And um, I would agree with you that the promise there is the promise of the Messiah and a prom- the promise of salvation brought by the Messiah. Um, but, of course, it's not that the miraculous gifts would continue on. It can't mean that. All right, on that we'll stop and second bell is rung. Thank you very much for your attention. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at collie at westhuntsville.org.